Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for wisdom, mentorship, and inspiration, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. I am so excited today. I got my good friend here, Mr. Isaac Zones. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to enjoy this one for sure. But without further ado, let me go ahead and edify the man properly. Isaac Zones is a San Francisco Bay Area based musician specializing in Jewish spiritual, folk, and family music. Isaac teaches music classes, leads prayer services, officiates life cycle events, and song leads for community events, weddings, camps, concerts, corporate events, and everything in between. Isaac learned to play guitar as a counselor at Camp Tawanga in 2001 and has been on staff almost every summer since. Isaac was born and raised in San Francisco and was bar mitzvahed under the tutelage of Rabbi Alan Liu. He graduated from Lowell High School and went on to graduate from Pomona College as a religious studies major and mathematics minor. Isaac wrote his graduate thesis on American Jewish identity through the lens of comedy. In 2005, Isaac became the founding director of the Moshe House and one of the inaugural residents. He helped the young adult peer-led program get off the ground and on its way to now boasting well over 100 houses in more than 25 countries. In 2020, Isaac won the Diller Jewish Educator Award for Excellence in Jewish Communal and Experiential Learning. In collaboration with fellow Bay Area kids musician Melita Silberstein, Isaac has two albums of Jewish family music that have been distributed internationally by the PJ Library. Both albums have won Parents' Choice Awards and chosen from a pool of music across all genres. You can find this under the artist's name, Melita and Isaac. Isaac also plays bigger shows with his Jewish jam band, Shamati. In addition to holiday dance parties and festivals, the band frequently plays for weddings, b'nai mitzvot parties, and other simcha celebrations. So ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together for my good friend, Isaac Zones. Thank oh, you. Thank you. ladies Thank and gentlemen, no, that's how we do it. Louder in the back, in the back. That's how no, we do okay. it. It's okay. You can sit down. Oh, right. my God. Oh, they're excited. <laughs> they heard about you. Okay. That's... Okay. Oh, calm down. Oh, my gosh. They're excited. They're excited. They're excited. All right. You know, what's happening, my friend? What? A wild fan base. So people are into you. I tell you what. I think they're into you, actually, is All what right. it really is. Right. So right. welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Good. Glad to be here, Saul. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you, my man. Okay, so for people that don't really know so much about you, I know I mentioned it briefly in your bio. Yeah, uh, talk a little bit about your upbringing, and we're going to talk really two streams today. One is Jewish, one is music, and then we're going to bring them together. So talk about your Jewish upbringing, and um, also I don't know if your bio mentioned Brandeis, but you can weave that in there as well, so people can kind of get to know you. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Uh, funny enough, my parents were both like they both grew up in the Bay Area too, but were very assimilated. Uh, my mom didn't even know she was Jewish. The, the story she tells is that she was like 10 years old. She was grew up in Palo Alto and she, her and her like neighborhood friends were throwing rocks at the new kids 
uh, and her brother was like, what are you doing that for? And she's like, oh, because they're Jewish. And, uh, and he was like, he grabbed her and he's like, you're Jewish too. Like, don't do that basically. And that's how she found out she was Jewish, but she didn't, I mean, it wasn't a part of her identity, I think until her thirties when she kind of like started deciding to like learn more about it and, and to take it on for herself. Um, and she said, she said she knew my dad for two years before she found out he was Jewish. So anyway, this is just a, 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 a taste wow. of how assimilated they both grew up. Um, but they decided to send me to a Jewish day school cause they wanted me to have more of a understanding of my Jewish identity and more, you know, Jewish education. And I went to Brandeis, um, uh, Hillel day school in San Francisco for elementary school. And then I went to public schools after that. But, um, yeah, it was actually pretty fun for me to like learn Hebrew and prayers and bring them home and be able to like, you know, to know something that my parents didn't know was kind of exciting and fun and to actually, you know, be like the teacher for them. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I, I loved growing up at Brandeis. I loved growing up Jewish. Um, I will say, you know, my mom, she, before I went to Brandeis, she also enrolled me in a program that like Mimi Greisman led, who's like a local, uh, music hero around here. Um, but she was somebody who you know, was an educator for me growing up. Um, anyway, I, I loved the community there and, and, uh, and I, you know, I was a little bit like a teacher's pet kind of kid. And, um, you know, and we had to like, once a year, our class would lead to Fila for the school. And so I was like, singing louder than everybody in class and you know trying to make sure the, the the probably the israeli hebrew teacher was like happy with the job that i was doing so i think that's a little bit how i got my start um connected to jewish music um i'll say a couple there, other yeah just real quick you were there k through eight the entire time just just through elementary school and then i went to public schools after that okay. um but it's funny enough we we didn't really we never belonged to a synagogue until a neighbor moved across the street who um were were pretty relatively from and they were part of a conservative synagogue at Beth Shalom in San Francisco mm -hmm. and um where Rabbi Lou was the head rabbi and um and they recruited us to join the synagogue and that's where I had my bar mitzvah and that's how I kind of got connected and really learned a lot more about conservative Judaism uh, at that point in my life um and then when I after I was 15 I went to Israel on a big program with a bunch of teens and had a really um kind of turning point for me around my identity and, and even like kind of started to change my social life. You know, I, I, most of my friends were Asian actually at that point, based on the schools I was going to in San Francisco. And then I made a lot of friends that were Jewish on that trip and started hanging out with them a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I still have like a full life with lots of different types of people, but that was when I started to really have more of a Jewish social life was after that trip to Israel. Um, and then I guess I'll just keep going. The, uh, I followed a girlfriend who I met on that Israel trip to work at Camp Tawanga. And that's where I really fell in love with being Jewish. Like uh, it was the first time I saw people kind of being Jewish in a joyful, like jo joyful Judaism, I call it or think of it. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically, it was our first it was like training week for staff. And Friday night after Shabbat dinner, there was like this, you know, big freilach, they call it uh, a big like song session. And I was a little bit on the sidelines, you know, just feeling it out as a new new person. And I got pulled in by some other guys who I didn't really know um, into like a huddle of guys with their arms around each other. And and there was like anyway, um, it was just like, well, I'd never seen I, I kind of never experienced anything like that musically and much less with like Hebrew as the backdrop uh, for that music. So that was definitely a lot of explosions went off in my head at that point. And that's the summer that I learned to play guitar and kind of started transitioning towards being a musician cool and that you were 15 yeah that summer i was 19 
15 when I went to Israel and 19 when I went to Camp Tawanga. Okay, and you had never been to Jewish summer camp prior to that. I never had. No, I I, I was like, um, I was all about baseball growing up. <laughs> I went to a lot of baseball camps. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I, I, I did play baseball my first year of college and had kind of a discouraging experience. And so that was, after that summer, I was supposed to be like weightlifting all summer. And I decided I'm done with this. And, um, and I followed the girlfriend I had at the time to go work at Camp Tawanga and and I think the void that uh, I left behind with baseball, I started to fill with guitar and music. And that first year, I you know probably learned 150 songs. Like I, I just, I was, uh, you know, something was like lit within mm. me. It was the, definitely the most growth and learning I have ever had as a musician that one year. I love it. I love it. Okay, so this is a good little segue, but interesting that from what I'm hearing, sounds like you really picked up guitar at 19. Is that accurate? I did? Yeah. So there, and and there- I, yeah. Was there music I, before that, or had you played it all? I, uh, I did Suzuki Method violin for six years, from okay. second grade to eighth grade, which uh, mostly I hated and fought with my mom a lot about. <laughs> and um, but I I do you know, and my mom played. She would accompany me on piano, and my dad actually played some guitar. And he and there was always music on the house. My mom was classical, and my dad was mostly jazz and like Carlos Santana. Oh, um, very and, uh, Yeah, and. Um, but I, I do think that I got like a, I think between the singing at, at Jewish day school and then the violin, I got like kind of a, you know, some ear training through all of that, for um, sure. yeah. which helped me later in life. For but sure. I, and for and, people not familiar with the Suzuki method, it's basically ear training, right? Yeah. For a long time. And then eventually leads to reading music. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I had, mm-hmm. I had like colored little tape on my violin and then like you know ways that i was like learning to read the notes that was more about colors and numbers than it was about like actually reading notes on a sheet music and i did i played in the orchestra for like a year or two in my middle school and was had to learn sheet music and that was tough i i just didn't like any of it to be honest and then my junior year in high school i had to do like an arts class and i joined the choir and i skyrocketed to like the chamber choir like whatever the head thing was um what does that I, mean people like don't know what that means what it what it means is like i i joined just a normal class and the teacher okay. identified me as a good singer and he was like oh i want you to be in this other thing that like meets after school mm. and um and i get i i got so it, i mean funny enough what it was is basically i just sang christmas music for two months we were like <laughs> we it was like a choir that we, we probably did like 20 performances in San Francisco in various locations, but all like Christmas music. And, and I ended up singing a, um, a song in our like winter recital that was like, he died to save us, you know, like the, the, that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, classic. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Well, you know, there are some Jewish composers in the Christmas repertoire. So <laughs> that's all, true. All connected. <laughs> okay, great. And so, so that's nice. So you definitely had a really musically supportive, loving environment, you know, both with your mom and your dad, which is great. I share that for sure. Both my parents, were they love music, right? They just love it, right? And so that love of music is definitely in your home. So let me ask you a question. Did you at any point consider becoming what I call, you know, a secular musician, maybe going the pop route or the folk route or anything like that? You know, it's that's a good question. I, it was always, well, okay, let me just say, I still like I'm I'm 41 now and I'm still kind of like taking on the identity of a musician, even though it's been like my full time work for 15 years. I because I was it just wasn't part of who I was growing up. 
So I don't think I ever thought in my head like, oh, this is a career or this is something that I want to be like central in my life. I kind of I almost feel like I fell into it backwards a little bit. But there was a point where I was a little like, oh, I wonder if I could make it or, you know, I wonder if I could be successful or, you know, like someone like Bob Dylan. I'm like, oh, it's amazing that he writes these lyrics and they connect with people and they're so inspiring. You know, could I do something like that? And um, I don't know if you remember this, but I at one point, I I think it was early on in me meeting you. You gave me seven hours of audio. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I think you're the only person to make it all the way through that. But no, well, tell, tell people I, about it. There was one hour that was about touring musicians. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready for this part yet. But I listened to the other six hours. And one of them, you'd, you went through and described like 20 types of venues that you could play in. And it was like, number one, um, you know, like bars and clubs. And I remember you're like, your job here is to sell alcohol, even if it just means you're dragging a chair back and forth across the stage and somehow they sell more alcohol, they will invite you back for this gig. And then you got to like number 13, like houses of worship. And I was just like, oh my God, that sounds so much better than all the other things that you're describing. And I was like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just in the right spot and I don't need to like uh, kick the tires on the other uh, types of music careers I could have. You saved yourself from years of pain and suffering that I went through on your behalf to create that audio. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what it's called or if I ever even released it, but it's like seven hours of, I don't know, the business of music or something. So it, thank it, you. It, I soaked it up. It was like exactly what I needed at the time of my life. And, uh, it, and I think it helped me uh, probably save years of experimentation. So thank you, Saul, for that. My pleasure. <laughs> Happy to suffer for the people. Okay. So so that kind of, you know, maybe not necessarily just listen to that, but you really you thought about it and, 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 and you decided, actually, you know, I'm going to stay in the Jewish lane. Or really, what was your kind of your final verdict on all that? You know, it's funny. I, um, I had a job working in public schools, and then I had another job where I was uh, working for Moisha House. Mm. Um, and at some point, I started getting asked to do more like Jewish music gigs. And I, I think initially, I wasn't that interested. And then somebody was like, oh, we'll pay you 150 bucks. And I'm like, all right, I'm there. Like, that was <laughs> what got me. <laughs> the big bucks. Yep. Exactly, exactly. But at some point, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a leap of faith and try to do this full time. And actually, Alana, your wife, uh, she had just gotten her job at PTBE, Bethel and um, in San Mateo, and she was leaving a job at Music Together where she had been a music teacher, and she recruited me. We didn't know each other that well, but she somehow recruited me to take her spot. I think she felt bad that she was leaving, and I, I worked there for about a year and a half. It's actually like the only job I ever got fired from, which is a whole other story. But um, <laughs> What is Music Together for people that don't know because it's still around? Yeah, it, it's like music classes for, for kids and often parents or sometimes nannies, uh, but it's like an adult and a child are uh, together. And it, it's really good. It, it's, it comes from a lot of research-based background, and it's, it really taught me how to be a good music teacher for young people. And it's you know, shaped a lot of what I still do, especially for families. Um, but the thing I was going to say about it is I, I had, I, it was the one job that I had where I was working with a lot of people who weren't Jewish. Um, and it was in a very wealthy neighborhood. And a lot of entitlement and stuff. And I, I think that was a little bit of a, and as I mentioned, I got fired from that job, but I, I, that was like, wait, 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 that, wait, come on. How did you get fired? <laughs> what did you do? It wasn't my fault. The, um, yeah, it, what happened was, you know, they made their music together, made their money cause they would charge an arm and a leg for the song books and the CDs. And the person who owned this franchise had to pay music together a lot of money for those. 
and um, and they were very tight on trying to keep track of them. And in my classes, there were some families that had two kids, and I was accidentally giving them two CDs and two songbooks when they would sign up. And that was, I didn't know it at the time, but it was a big no-no. And the, and the Shonda, oh, <laughs> the and, giving uh, them more materials. Exactly. And <laughs> okay, uh, okay. when the, when the person found out they're really upset and they've, you know, they treated it like I had been stealing from them or something. So, but um, just to say it, it was, it was, it was the one job I had where I was working outside the Jewish community and I, I just didn't like it. It didn't, it didn't feel like family. I didn't feel like I was part of the group in the same way. So, mm. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And then at what point did you take the song and say, okay, I'm going down this Jewish path musically. And what did that look like in terms of what you were doing at that time? I was working for Moisha House. I think I had one year where I worked part-time for Moisha House and I was doing some of these music gigs on the side. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I actually remember um, I was getting recruited to work at the Jim Joseph Foundation based on my Moisha House job. And I and they asked me to come in for like a informational interview kind of thing. And I basically told the woman, I was like, I'm going to just do music full time. Like, I don't want a, a suit and tie job anymore. And she was like looking at me like I was crazy. Like, why would I turn this opportunity down? But I I, I was like sure that this is something I wanted to try. Mm. And um, and I, you know, it's funny. I was living off of my expectations of how much money I was going to make at the time was very low. And so I was able to, you know, I don't know, work 20 hours a week. And that was like enough for me to um, to make what I all I wanted to make. And I, I took a lot of classes in San Francisco. I had this great resource called the community music center. I think I was pretty aware that I didn't have an education in music the way that I wanted to and that I needed to. So, um, I started, I was like in a, you know, beginning jazz workshop there. And it was funny because it was, I was probably 25 or 26 at the time. And it was like me and all retirees. So it'd be like a class (laughs) like me. Yeah. And everybody else is like 70 to 85. Like, (laughs) um, but I made friends with the teachers and, and I think they, you know, saw a potential in me that, you know, maybe they felt like they weren't getting a teaching the older crowd as much. Um, but I was taking private guitar. I was taking a lot of piano, voice lessons, uh, all of it. And I just I learned a ton and I think I grew a lot musically. Um, and that, you know, really helped kind of I, I think that helped me get better at being a stronger musician and, you know, and trying to make myself better. And then I, I think the next stage for me was um, in 2013, a, a friend of mine that I had made at Camp Tawanga, Nathaniel Markman, who you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, recruited me to be in this band, Shamati. Um, and that was really my first time being in a band and playing with other musicians. And I learned, well, it's been, I guess this will be 10 years this year that we've been together, but it's, I've met a lot of musicians through that and um, have learned basically how to like communicate with other musicians and how to lead a band and and have grown a lot musically. I mean, everybody who's in that band, I think of as being way more talented than I am. Uh, and, and Jordan you know, and Ben, and who's the drummer? Uh, Craig Miller, uh, with who he, he's the drummer for La Misa Negra. Um, but I, you probably know Ezra, who who like will sub for him sometimes uh, from cool. ALO. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, it's just very talented musicians, as you know. You played with us one time for Purim. I don't know if you remember that. I do. It was porn, but I still remember it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, real quick, because you, you mentioned Moisha House, and there may be a, a lot of people that actually don't know what that is. So just for a second, just talk about what that is, because I think there's a certain you know age group that that really speaks to. Yeah. So Moisha House um, is, at its core, it's a bunch of young adult Jews who live together and create community out of their house through their own social networks. Um, so when I... Um, 
some friends of mine were living in Oakland, and they it was four Jewish guys who lived together, and they were already having like Shabbat dinners and stuff. And the I at the, at the time I was working for this guy David Siegelman, who's now the head of Moshe Alsher, the CEO or whatever his title is, and um, he basically approached them and said, "What if we like subsidized your rent and gave you some money, f- like to pay for food and you know have a budget, and es- essentially like take what you're already doing and kind of like." turn it into a program was sort of the origins of it. And then I had a few friends, like I was living at home at the time. I had a friend who was living in his dad's office, like on the couch <laughs> and, um, and they caught wind of it and they were like, Hey, we should do that too. Um, so I think we even started maybe a month after this group in Oakland, we were in San Francisco and it, and because I was working for David at a, you know, the forest foundation was the name of it. It was a whole nother story. Um, he was like, Hey, you're living in a moisture house. I, you know, there's no rules right now. Like I need you to like, figure out how to create rules and a structure and stuff. And so I, I got to kind of dream big about like, you know, what's possible for young adult community and, and like what, you know, and kind of how to support people. Um, but at the same time, I was also like asking people to submit pictures online of their events so that, you know, there was like some evidence that they happened and, um, and taking care of all the receipts and stuff like that. David basically was like, Hey, you know, this is a, this is going well and we're, we're getting funding for this. He's like, I want you to start a new house every two months when we first started. So I went up to Seattle and I met some people who were interested. I went to Philadelphia. I think I even over the phone started a house in Montevideo, Uruguay. Cool job. Love it. And Moshe house, it still exists now. Yes. Yeah. And there's really yeah. sort of the, the, people like fr- that are in college or kind of fresh out of college that's kind of the mostly the age or i think it's yeah like I, i'm sure they have some official parameters but i think it's like folks in their 20s primarily it might be more into their 30s now too i'm not sure right. yeah young millennials into their 42 no, okay <laughs> got it love it okay that's great and definitely yeah, look up moshe house if you haven't heard about it. they do some great things for sure and exactly is creating community for that age group which is their people are like going in a lot of different directions and like hey here let's create a little home base for you so i think it's really sweet in that regard so one thing i wanted to talk about and have you reflect back which is you know we're here in the bay area which i i love its diversity and i love the fact that it's really what I would describe as a great example of Jewish pluralism. Like there's everything here. I mean, maybe not, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot, maybe right. not a lot of like breast love Hasidism, but outside of that, there's pretty much everything here. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on that experientially and also in your work. And then yeah. I have a couple other questions for you about that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's funny, you know, like I, I mentioned, I grew up in kind of this, uh, Jewish experience too, where I was like teaching my parents about how to be Jewish essentially. And I'm, my wife is, um, Chicana. She would describe herself as, but as like Mexican American, she was born in the LA area, raised Catholic, you know, has not converted to Judaism, but took a year of Hebrew classes and we've been to Israel together. And we have a four-year-old that we're raising Jewishly all to say that I, you know, also have like a very blended Jewish family, um, you know, with lots of interesting conversations and, you know, negotiating to figure out like what that looks like and, and how to set it up. Um, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, here's what I'll say is that I think there's a lot of people who have decided, you know, just because I'm not doing Judaism the way that I was supposed to do it or told to do it doesn't make it like less legitimate or less Jewish or something like that. So I, I think there's a lot of people taking ownership of their Judaism and, and taking initiative around building Jewish community and you know and and sort of pushing the boundaries of what's possible and and you know and, and making it kind of their own 
Um, and I guess for me personally, you know, I've sort of helped participate in those ways musically primarily. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say about my family that we're part of a group called Ola Mim, which is like a Spanish speaking Jewish community for families and kids. Like our son only speaks Spanish. Um, wow. And so a lot of the Jewish programming that we've been trying to do for him, we've been trying to do it in Spanish. Um, so like that's something I don't know if it exists elsewhere, for instance. Amazing. Um, yeah. That sounds amazing. Oh, well, People I imagine find out about that because yeah. I've heard about it. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a lot of Spanish speaking Jews in Spanish speaking countries, but in the U.S., probably not as many. Oh, but that program is not unique to the Bay Area. It's a it's a larger program or is it's, it? I think it's Bay Area based. I only know about programs in the Bay Area, but I think they're trying to connect, you know, on a broader scale and maybe trying oh. to figure things out. Um I just know, you know, we hosted a Tubi Shvat Seder in Spanish at our house in February, you know, with six Sweet. or seven or eight families, something like that. Um, the So for me, musically, what's interesting is um, at this point, a lot of work that I'm doing is related to people doing independent uh, bar bat mitzvah, b'nai mitzvot um, ceremonies, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a park or um, at uh, like a, a venue of some kind. And, um, and in some cases I'm showing up and playing the music for those. In other cases, I'm kind of like coaching the families and, you know, how to prepare mentally and emotionally, as well as like actually plan the service, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, help them kind of get prepared in all those ways. Um, and those are things that I don't know if they, I was talking to somebody recently who was like, oh yeah, that's not a job in Boston, <laughs> you know, like, um, like I don't know how much there's like that kind of independence or people kind of taking it on themselves, uh, in other places. So I, I think I feel fortunate in that sense that, uh, that I'm here and getting to participate. I love it. Well, I, I will say, yes, there are independent B'nai Mitzvot happening all over the country for sure. I know people that that's all they do. That is like yeah. the Parnassa and they travel around the country doing so. Yes, for sure. I don't know how much in Boston per se, but you know, for sure <laughs> it's happening. And, and I love that. And, and I participate a lot in that as well. So, okay, so people could actually reach out to you if they were interested in having an independent B'nai Mitzvah. That's something that you do yeah. on the sort of facilitating or just coaching the student along the way or actually, you know, playing the ceremony itself. Yeah. Yeah. Often uh, I'll either work with a separate officiant and do the music or sometimes do both the officiating and the, the music. I haven't been doing the tutoring, so usually I partner with somebody else to do the tutoring aspect of it. For the trope and stuff. Okay, cool. So, which actually brings me to another question that I was very interested to understand from you. So, you do all these things. You know, you're a cantorial soloist. I don't know if that's your official title in different communities, but you're essentially, you know, you're leading worship and you're doing the music. Have you ever thought about um, getting smicha as a cantor in a particular movement? Uh, why or why not? I definitely thought about it. Uh, you know, part of it was going to places like Havana Shira or Song Leader Boot Camp and seeing lots of cantors and um, and clergy and talking to people and being, really being inspired by many of them. Um, and, you know, and thinking like, okay, this would be a chance for me to deepen my career and my learning in particular. Um, and I, d- I interviewed several people kind of like, you know, with the like, should I figure out how to do this or not? Uh, I ended up deciding at this point not to. Um, I think for several reasons, and they're kind of varied, and and it's still one of those things I haven't made a firm decision around in my mind. But I had a I had one friend who who basically was like, I think that to be clergy, it should be a calling, uh, like that it you should feel like this is kind of what's your purpose in life, or you know, or something that like is connected to a higher power, 
um, around the decision. And I didn't feel that. And so I think there was something that, that spoke to me about that. And, and I felt like, okay, well maybe, maybe I, you know, maybe I can make a career doing what I'm doing without having to, um, without deciding to like be officially clergy. Um, so that was something that that made an impression on me. I, I will say, I mean, in all honesty, I'm married to a woman who's not Jewish and isn't planning to convert. And I know that that that's complicated and sticky. And, and I don't, I don't know if I necessarily like couldn't have had a big Jewish life as a clergy member with her as my partner, but I know that that is like a question that, that gets asked, uh, as part of the admissions process. Um, oh, I don't know I where heard that, yeah, yeah, that's not, but that's not universally true in every program. Just uh, there are some programs. Yeah. Like, like for example, well, I don't know this to be a hundred percent true. So yeah. Edit this out later, but I, I don't think with the Aleph program, it's like that. You could I, be right. And I know that uh, yeah. when Alana started the Aleph program, I started to look hard at that too, because that looked interesting. And, and that was the other thing is like, I couldn't really imagine moving somewhere for five years uh, away from the Bay Area. At the time that I was looking at it, that sort of seemed like the programs I would have been looking at that would have required me. And and the truth is I had I was like enjoying what I was doing already and I was feeling like the momentum of it and I didn't want to stop. Um, uh, yeah, and you're yeah. essentially you are essentially doing all of the things that a cantor would do yeah. except for dealing with a board, right? Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Which is- I, I mean, I, I'm not doing pastoral counseling, you know, and that's something I I feel like could be a little bit out of my scope. Um, and there are times that I get into situations where people want to have really intense discussions with me about God that I feel a little like, oh, I wish I'd had a little more training around this. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, I don't know if people are getting that kind of training necessarily. Maybe it's just through experience that you do. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, and I feel like I haven't had a, like as much deep Jewish learning uh, around studying Torah and Talmud as as people probably would be expected to going through those kinds of programs. Um, so I, I do feel like, yeah, there's some differences, but I will say I've got a lot of experience and, uh, and that I really, I value and, and I've, I've learned a lot. And I, and I think that that's actually my favorite way to learn is to learn on the job, so to speak, like to learn through experience. hundred percent with you on that, my brother. Yeah. And paths change, right? People do things later in life. It's all, it's all good. And you're doing the whole work and it's, you know, I think every one that I've interviewed and every other Jewish person I've ever met in my entire life has felt like, ah, I should learn more. I need to learn more. And this is good. This is like, you know, it's, it's aspirational feelings, which I think are super positive. I feel that way about Hebrew every day. I need to learn more. I need to do better. I need to keep up with my eight-year-old that's almost fluent. Like, this this, this is real. Okay. Speaking of which, a quick Hebrew question for you. And now, I thought that you were actually the founding member of Shemati, but I guess uh, Nathaniel was. So, here's my question. Shemati means, I hear you, but it's a band. So, why isn't it Shemanu? Oh, interesting. Well, um, I'll give you the origin of how we got the name, but maybe we should consider changing it. The... uh, um, and it's past tense, right? It's like, I heard you and Shamanu, I guess would be, we heard you. The, um, we started with the band and this was Nathaniel's idea. Our first gig we played for Wilderness Torah, Sukkot on the Farm Festival. We had a band named Tevat Teva, which was the, the name of the wilderness department at Camp Tawanga. And, uh, and what I was told is it means nature's treasure chest. So it's like kind of a play on words, um, like yeah uh-huh. yeah mm-hmm. um but basically no one could say it no one could remember it it was just it didn't work and we 
Nathaniel had put us together as a band and he knew all the musicians, but none of us knew each other. So we were really getting to, we, I think we did four rehearsals before that first gig. We were really just getting to meet each other and get to know each other. But as part of that, he would have us go around and say something about our lives. And at the end of it, we would say Dibarti and everybody else would say Shamati, uh, which I think in the circles that he was in, that was like a common thing, right? Like I have yeah. spoken and everybody's like, I have heard you, you know, it's a little bit of like a spiritual kind of thing. And, um, so that was like, I think one of the few things at that point in our relationships that we had in common was kind of like, you know, and, and Nathaniel was, I think, used to that, but the, none of the rest of us were used to it. So it was a little bit like funny and silly and awkward. Um, but, it, you know, it was a little bit like a, I don't know, I, I would want to say like an in joke for us or something, but it was, it was like a, something we had in common. So, and I was like, this people could spell this, they could remember it, like they can say it. So I was like, why don't we, why don't we try this? And that, and he was a little nervous that it would feel like offensive to some of the people who, you know, that ritual was like more sacred. But I, I, I mean, sometimes I think of it as like a namaste for, um, you know, for Hebrew. Right. I've done that, you know, you would say Debarti, I would say Shemati, it's all good. Yeah. One. Um, uh, let me say quickly, though, that a lot of people think it's Shmata is the band, uh, you know, which is like a dirty rag in Yiddish. And really? so oh, no. we've had a lot of people like, why would you name yourself Shmata? <laughs> You could have been Shamati, but you're Pre-pandemic, I went as far as to make like band logos on handkerchiefs, you know, to sell oh, like nice. Shamati Shmatas, which I think we sold all of like one or two total. <laughs> not, not a hot, hot item. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, to be continued, the, the evolution of the name. And then just real quick on Shamati, you know, you, you guys play weddings and simchas and, and uh, I heard stadium concerts as well on your website. <laughs> so uh, what's going on with all that? Well, the stadium concert is a joke because we've done the national anthem a few times for the A's for uh, Jewish Heritage Night. And yeah, it was funny. Our first time we did it, uh, it was against the Royals on like a Tuesday night. And there was 8,000 people there, which was by far the most people I'd ever sung in front of. But in a stadium that fits like 60,000, it felt like there was nobody there. <laughs> and then the subsequent years we got to do it, it was with um, the Dodgers and the Yankees. And there was like, you know, thirty to 40,000 people at the time that the game started. So that felt like intimidating and exciting. You've, you've done national anthem. I have. It was literally the most nervous I've ever been for anything <laughs> in my life, except for the birth of my children. Just, I know this podcast is not about me, but I had 48 hours notice, basically, sitting in front of uh, the Warriors during like their peak season, 19,000 people. And, you know, you think you know the national anthem until you actually sing it and realize how hard that melody is. And it's also old English. So I'm thinking, OK, great. There's going to be lyrics on a giant, you know, prompter. <laughs> Everyone will sing, and no, exactly the opposite. You're literally <laughs> standing around these giant humans for the basketball. Like you know, even Steph Curry, six two. I'm still looking out to him. Like everyone is is just huge, and the crowd goes completely silent, and there's a spotlight on you. And like I almost had a complete panic attack. Like it was so scary, but you know, thank God it worked out, and the fireworks went off, and it was great. But. If we you are a musician listening to this, I always tease my wife. You got to do it. You have to. Yeah. It's just a rite of passage. Yeah. So we um we made a short little video of our experience doing the national anthem the first time, and it actually was interesting. Is we had it was it was right in the controversy of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee oh, right. for the national anthem and Donald Trump, you know, making oh, yeah. a whole scene of it, mm -hmm. and we had this like, oh my gosh, should, you know, how do we? What do we do? And we ended up I ended up getting shirts made that said Jews for Black Lives Matter. And we all had the shirts on, but we, it was funny. We were nervous about, we were nervous about the national anthem. We were also nervous about wearing those shirts and we ended up, um, 
I think we had sweatshirts on and then kind of at the last minute we like took our sweatshirts off and, and the person who was like our liaison for the A's was like, oh, no, 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 you can't wear that. They, they kind of freaked out. I think they're sure they were like worried about their job. And um, we ended up kind of like having the sweatshirts on like on the side of like we we're trying to show off the shirts, but trying to like make this person feel better by having our sweatshirts on. Anyway, it was a little bit of a bizarre thing. But there's a, we made a short YouTube video that's pretty fun and captures, I think, some of the nervousness ahead of time, too. I love it. Yeah, no, there's a video of it as well. It was a great experience. Uh, hopefully we have enough time for you to play a song. I don't know. Are you, can you? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then tell us a little bit about it. Okay, cool. And I want to, anyway, I got another thing I want to uh, talk about too. Um, so this song, I, um, I saw, I feel like a lot of times I've written music. It's because I saw a performance or I listened to something that inspired me, but I, I would listen to, um, anyway, uh, somehow I started to think like, you know what if what if Sam Cook were to write like a prayer uh for um uh you know for Shabbat and so this is uh, Ahavat Olam a great love or an everlasting love and this is a little bit my midrash uh, in the voice of Sam Cook as like how I th- like to think about it We'll start with the chorus if I can get there see Love, love, and love, love, and love, and love, and love. To the Meshuganus Everlasting love Now what would it mean To know you've always been loved You've always been seen And we sing love and love and love Love and love and love and love Israel, I'm high. 
Don't be afraid of what the dark may bring. Have faith in the love. Continue to sing. For after all, the sun always rises in the morning. We sing. Love and love and love love and love and love and love of Adolam. Love and love and love love and love and love and love. Beit Israel, Amcha, Ahavta. Everlasting love. Oh, sweet. That was sweet, <laughs> my man. I love it. I thought it. you might like it. that one, Saul. So. Oh, I was singing harmonies in the background. It's great. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was beautiful. I was singing harmonies. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I got an album I want to talk to you about for sure. We definitely okay. have influences. I love that 60 soul stuff and Sam, anything Sam Cook is, is good by me. You are in the middle of uh, fundraising for a really cool, exciting project. I want to make sure we, we give you a little kavod on that and, and talk about that and, and let people know what you're doing. Yeah. So um, our band uh, about a year ago played a wedding and um, the the brother of the bride uh, was there and was really inspired and and, and there it's a, that's a family that's um, like American Israelis, uh, the parents are Israeli but they grew up here in the U.S. and they um, uh, he I think had you know I don't know he felt just really inspired by the hora and the Mayim Mayim and Zemaratik and the different Israeli folk dancing that you know we were we were leading it but we also kind of have a little edge and a little um, you know we just kind of blend it with different genres a little bit and. Um, he waited a few months to decide if he really, you know, how he felt about it. And he, and then he reached out to us and said, Hey, he's a documentary filmmaker. And he said, I think it, there could be a cool documentary, um, kind of centered around your band, but, you know, learning a little bit more about what you guys do around horror music and around, um, this is really folk dance kind of in the, you know, the little twist you have on it, but also maybe taking you guys to Israel and getting to meet the people who like, wrote the songs that you're singing, uh, the people who are now in their 80s and, and getting older. Um, and so that's kind of the premise for this documentary. Um, and right now we're doing a Kickstarter to raise enough money to get us to Israel and and essentially shoot all the footage that would take place in Israel. Um, and then we'll have to kind of do more fundraising to do all the editing and, and stuff like that. Um, we're, we're off to a great start. Our, our fundraiser, we're like 60, 70% of the way there, and we've got like another month to go. Um, you can find the fundraiser if you're interested and learn more about it at IHearYouFilm.com. So IHearYouFilm.com. Uh, I Hear You is kind of, you know, a reference to Shamati, as we talked about with the band before. I guess I, I think it's a working title for now, but IHearYouFilm.com will take you to the Kickstarter. Uh, you can see a, a really nice trailer of, you know, kind of some ideas of what the movie will be like, and you'll see some fun stuff about our band. Um, and... Yeah, and we've also gotten, we've already started to get some interest in people who want to become like investors in the film. So um, 
I don't, you know, we're figuring out how that could take shape and what that would look like. But um, it, it's starting to, it has a lot of momentum right now and could end up turning into a, a much bigger project than we had initially envisioned. I love it. And so when are you, do you already have the dates that you're going to Israel? We're planning to go in July, kind of mid-July. So um, we're doing the fundraising now, you know, hopefully the Kickstarter is one of those, you know, models where it's like all or nothing, right? So we got to, we got to get across no the finish problem. line. Um, but we're planning to go in July. Um, and hopefully that'll, you know, the time that we have a lot, it will be enough time for us to get all the footage that we have there. You know, it's possible if we get a bigger budget and investors that we might end up making a second trip or something. Amazing. Amazing. By Hashkacha Prati, my family will be there at the exact same time. So oh, really? we'll have a cup of coffee. How cool. All right. I love that. I love it. Okay. So great. So go to I hear you film.com. That's right. Yep. Uh, you can also probably get there through your website, isaacstones.com. I actually don't have anything about the Kickstarter on my website, but I should look, I should get into that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Good tip. Okay. Another tip from Saul. Okay. And you can also, if you, if you go to the Kickstarter website and search, yeah, mm. it's also another way to do it. So yeah. uh, there'll be links below this video or in the podcast description that you can check out. Okay. So as we're wrapping up here, I know we both got have to go, but the question I always ask everyone is, uh, what do you feel the Jewish world needs now most and why? I've heard you ask this on some of your other guests with the podcast. So I, I was a little bit thinking about it and I'm, you know, I'm not going to sing what the world needs now. Um, I, uh, it, I think it's probably in part because of the family that I have and the relationship that I'm in, but I, I really feel like what I would love to see happen in the Jewish world is kind of like a broadening of connections to like people of color and working class people and, you know, labor unions and, and, and kind of people like kind of a wider swath of people in the world. And, and, and I'd love to see us kind of making more unions, more connections and kind of, um, I think strengthening our connections with people outside the Jewish community. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm saying that in part, I'm trying to cast it in a positive light, but I, I will say there are a lot of spaces that I go into Jewishly where I can feel that it's a lot of white people and a lot of wealthy people and it uh, can be uncomfortable, I think, for people who, who aren't fitting into those categories. I, I know it's different in Israel, and there's certain, like, plenty of communities in the U.S. that kind of have their own pockets. But a lot of the places where I go play music, um, you know, I think that's just who the community is and where it's set up right now. And there's a lot of people figuring out really interesting things to, to change that and develop that and bring more Jews of color into central positions and leadership, which I think is great. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, synagogues making relationships with um, churches and, you know, and black, uh, churches and, you know, lots of different kind of bridging divides. Um, and yeah, I think I, I just would love to see it more. It's probably something I would just love to see in society is people figuring out how to reach across class divides and racial divides. But I, I guess because the Jewish community is my community and it's the one that I feel like is family. Um, that's sort of what, that's what I see. And, and, and I think honestly, you know, <laughs> now we're going to get into a bigger conversation, which we probably don't have time for. But like I, you know, I have a little bit of a Marxist perspective on the world and I see cra more and more cracks in the capitalist structure that we have, like the Silicon Valley Bank thing locally recently. And um, and I just think that it's going to be in our best interest as a Jewish people to be connected to, you know, large groups of people and, and have solid relationships, you know, and, and to prioritize the relationships over over money, over finance, over um, those kinds of things. So that, that's what I would love to see happen in the Jewish world. And obviously these, you know, same 
things apply to what's going on in Israel. Uh, and, you know, that's like probably one of the hardest things to figure out in the whole world about how to bridge divides and figure out how to reach across and make relationships. But, um, you know, I'll just mention that it's been a really exciting uh, week in Israel in terms of big wins for labor movements and um, and and progressives and, you know, people doing demonstrating. And um, so, I, I don't know, for me, I, that, that feels very inspiring and hopeful. And we'll kind of see how things continue to play out with the government and, and the, the will of the people, et cetera. Maybe we'll get a close-up look in July. <laughs> so, yeah, I love it. So definitely reaching out to different demographics of people. How can we keep, how can we can bring them close or go to where they are and more diversity uh, is what I'm hearing from you, which, which I love. Yeah. And there, and there is already a lot of diversity within the Jewish community. So in some cases it's just sort of like, you know, making relationships and making space for the people who are already in our community, but also I think reaching outside of the community. And, and I think some of the work, you know, obviously it's to do it like, you know, building it, organization to organization but i think some of it too is just person to person like um you know figuring out how to have close friends that are you know come from different worlds from you and can expand your mind and and help you grow and and vice versa 100 percent agree i think it benefits everyone involved for sure so well we're going to wrap up but uh just want to bless you on your journey that should be very fruitful you should connect to a lot of different types of people and kiruv meaning bringing them close to not only yourself but to our tradition and build bridges between different traditions and that your kickstarter should overflow with abundance it should be an easy raise and we will see you in the holy land in july and thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you my man love you Saul. thank you for all you do and the path you pave for me and so many others that we uh, get to follow in your footsteps um great to be with you man Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family who you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.